Well, let's turn to God's Word. And uh, as Chi Peng prayed this morning, he, he kind of gave an introduction for me as well, talking about the plans that we have for the year. And, uh, uh, but let me just put it a slightly different way. I mean, we make plans, but what really is ahead of you for this year? What's ahead of you? What lies before you? Joy was telling me just as I was sitting in here and she was um, outside and got a phone call. Uh, her brother uh, a couple of days ago had undergone uh, heart surgery and news this morning is not good. Um, we, we expected something different. What do we look forward to in this year? The answer really is that we have very few certainties. Very few. We're booked to travel to the UK in July. Um, a few years ago we tried to go. Covid came along and that cancelled it out. So we booked again. Uh, but this time I have a sense that it's not quite as certain. Partly because I'm a few years older. But Covid is there. And a booking even though it's a few months ahead, ooh, will it, will it, won't it happen? Disease, financial pressures, health issues, older age, these are all unpredictable clouds that hang around. And they hang around all of us. There are indeed few certainties. But I want to share with you from James chapter 1 a few guarantees. We like guarantees, don't we? These are things uh, that we will experience in this year. Probably we've experienced them before, but we would like to think a new year, you know, a new year dawns, it's all behind us. No, we will face these in this new year. James is writing. Uh, this is, would be uh, James, uh, often thought as uh, the brother of Jesus, certainly uh, someone who is mature in his faith. And he's writing to Jews, Christians who live in different parts of the world. Uh, we remember that at the, um, just after the resurrection, after the Lord had ascended into heaven, there were people came from different parts of the world to Jerusalem. And while they were there, they experienced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And many were converted and they went back to their lands. So there were Jewish Christians already around. And even although um, they wouldn't have been there for very long, James is writing to them. And he gives them a number of guarantees. And the first guarantee is this. You're going to have times of trial this year. So I said, you probably had them before but, and think, like to think that they're behind you. But you're going to be tried this year. Trials come to us um, when we have that sense of losing something that's of value to us. That's what a trial is. We're losing something that's of value to us. If we are normally healthy, and then suddenly we are confronted by uh, a challenge to our health, 
That's a trial. That's a test. Family relationships can break down quite suddenly. That's a trial. We can lose possession. We can lose wealth. Many other things. And we are tempted at that time, are we not, to question God's existence, God's love and care. These are trials. Of course, there's nothing new in this, other, is there? I was reminded recently of the incident of Naomi. You remember Naomi in the, the book of Ruth, written Ruth's mother-in-law? She was with her husband. And because of circumstances, they moved to a different part of the country, into the country of Moab. She had two sons, uh, and as that young family, they seemed to be moving along quite well. They, were, they found food, they found sustenance, they found shelter. But then husband died. That was a broken relationship. That was a trial. And then two sons died. One dying is bad enough, but two, they die. And she was left with two daughters-in-law. Okay, she wasn't bereft. But she decided that, well, maybe the time is right for me to go back to the place of my birth, my own land, back towards Bethlehem. And so she went, and we remember the story of Ruth. She... Um, asked her daughters-in-law to stay behind. You know, this Moab is where you were brought up. Ruth said, no, I'll go with you. Oprah said, no, I will uh, stay behind. Challenges day after day. What is going on? And even to think of going back to Bethlehem. When she went back, she was saying to her neighbors, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi meant pleasant, but such is my condition. The trial of my life is bitter. So there's nothing new in trials. They've happened over the years. I don't know if I've told you before, but uh, just as we arrived here in Perth, West Australia, and I was working in the church, there was a young man there who was a relatively new convert. He had been brought up in a Catholic background but walked away from it. Uh, he had dabbled in Buddhism uh, but found nothing in that. But then, by God's grace, he came to faith in Jesus. And he was at that stage a fairly young believer as I met him and we began to spend time together and study the scriptures together. But then he lost his job. Now, there was a trial. At that time... He, the profession he was in, there was a surfeit, there were many of them, and it wasn't easy to find work. Then his younger son, at the age of 21, took his own life. Was that a trial? Of course. Took his own life. As his youngest child, his daughter, turned 18, his wife suddenly upped and left. Walked out on him. Said, I've I've done my job, I'm out of here. Children are old enough now, I can get on with my life. Here is a young man who put his trust in Jesus, looked to him, and yet he was without job, lost a son, lost his companion. 
And I often looked at that man and said, how do you keep going? Trials hit his heart. Well, these trials come to us in different ways. Uh, I'm sure you could stand and tell me of yours. I could stand and tell you of mine. But how do we react to them? How do we react? And this is why James is writing, the author of this letter is writing. He's deeply conscious that his fellow believers are going to face trials of many kinds. Some of them would be individual and some of them would be collective. But how would, should they react? And this is what he writes. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials will indeed test our faith. No way about it. Trials will bring our trust in the love and the power of our Lord into sharp focus. Trials will test the reality of the trust that we say we have. It's one thing to say we trust in Jesus. But when trials come, how strong is our trust? Will our trust and faith stand firm especially if the trial we face never seems to end. And I know, and you know, many people who go through life with a challenge and a burden that they carry with them. Well, we remember the Apostle Paul, don't we? He had some ailment that afflicted him. It was a trial to him, and he wanted the Lord to take it away. But he learned that it was there for the long term. Did Paul go into a state of depression? Did he go into a state of doubt? Did he go, fall into a deep depression or despair? No. He learned that there was a divine supply to help him through testing times. We remember what the Lord said to him when he asked that his thorn in the flesh would be taken away. The Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. Grace is given. That enabling to understand where I'm at in life before the Lord who loves me. Paul remained steadfast in his trust. He never wavered. And he ran his life's race faithfully right to the end. So that's guarantee number one. You're going to have times of trial. Here's a guarantee that goes along with that. A guarantee. You have a source of wisdom. Looking to the wisdom that God supplies will put trials we face into a true perspective. Where do trials come from? Why do they arise? Well, the scriptures that God has given to us tell us why we are, live in such a troubled world and why as individuals and as collective uh, people we suffer trials. We live in a fallen world. The scriptures are clear on that. 
That's where we can understand. That's why when it happens to us, we say, yes, we are part of that. We know where it comes from. And that helps us to look for the support that we need in the midst of it. And here, James gives his support. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I was reminded recently again of the incident of Lazarus. Uh, remember him in the, uh, in the book of John? He was a good man. Uh, obviously a convert, a follower of Jesus. He was a, a, a deep believer in Jesus. He was a friend of Jesus. Uh, it, it was the house that Jesus often went to, the house of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. Good friends. Uh, lovely life. Great relationship. But Lazarus got sick. Lazarus got sick. And this means that sickness was not a sign that God was angry with him or upset with him. He knew a wonderful relationship with Jesus. And sickness, as I learned uh, recently from uh, an excellent little booklet of, uh, by J.C. Rell, Bishop Ryle, sickness is there intended to be a blessing to us. That's hard, isn't it? How can sickness be a blessing? It's a suffering. It's a trial. It's a testing time. Will I get through this or won't I? As the old saying goes, you know, sometimes God will put us on our backs to make us look up. And uh, there is a lot of reality in that. And sickness often brings to focus what life is all about. And sickness makes us indeed consider our relationship before God. Life itself could run out and then what? Friends, that is a blessing that makes us consider where we are at before God. Are we in the right relationship with him? And if life does indeed run out as the outcome of this particular illness... Will I be able to stand accepted in his sight? So wisdom we need. Well, what wisdom can we learn from the account of Lazarus? We find it in his sister's simple message to Jesus. And here it is. Lord, the one whom you love is sick. That was the message. Isn't it delightful, though? Isn't it delightful? Notice the sisters didn't say, Lord, you know Lazarus, how much he loves you? You know how much he talks of you? 
You know how much he's willing to share the news of you with those around him. You, you know that. He's sick. It's almost as though he loves you so much he has merited you coming to him. But that's not what the sisters said. Lord, the one whom you love, is ill. Do you see the difference? When you pray for someone who is a child of God, who is suffering in some way, friends, we can use this as a prayer. Lord, the one whom you love is suffering. The one whom you love is sick. The one whom you love is having family problems. The one whom you love is without a job. Does that not turn it around? Make it something that, yeah, that's what I long for. The Lord loves that person. And he alone, of course, is able to intervene and fulfill what his purpose is for that person in the midst of their circumstances. But it puts that person right in the orbit of the love of the Lord Jesus. And that's how we apply it in a wider sense. Lord, we love you. Don't you care to come to us in our trials that we're facing. Lord, the ones whom you love are facing trials. It's the simplest of expressions that the sisters made, but oh, the faith, the trust, the confidence that's behind it all. Mary and Martha were unwavering in their faith, strong and stable. Even in their simple message to Jesus, there was an expression of deepest trust. No one else could or would do what their hearts cried out for. So that's the second guarantee. You have a source of wisdom. The third guarantee is this. Very simple, but it is so. We tend to forget it at times. Nothing in this world is permanent. Nothing in this world is permanent. In this created world. Trials of life can have great impact on our daily circumstances. Change can happen like that. A simple fall can put a person in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. A loss of employment can change a whole comfortable lifestyle, bring a person to penury, to, to, to a great loss. A husband or wife can have a sudden diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease and the whole dynamic of a family is changed within a minute. A wayward son's actions can impact the mental health of parents that they will carry for years. These are things that we would like to think we've got a stable life, but there is no stability. There is nothing that, can, that is permanent. It can all happen in a moment. 
For those persons who think they have it all together, wealth, liberal lifestyle, possessions, the fall will be hard. And they will be angry. And they will point the finger and blame everyone else, even God. That's why uh, the, the, the writer uh, cautions, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. If you don't have a lot, then you're not going to lose a lot. And the rich man in his humiliation, because nothing is permanent. Like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It will happen in an instant. But blessed, says James, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. He's put it into perspective. He sought wisdom. He understands the world in which he lives. And he is also aware of the love of God towards him. And so he is able to steadfast, stand steadfastly through the trial. He has stood the test of time. And he will receive the crown of life. There is a future to it. This trial will not continue forever. It will be brought to an end, either in this life by God's grace, or if it's a something we carry through our lives, and there are many who do that, we know that at that point it will be brought to an end as we enter into the presence of the one who loves us. And so James encourages those who pass through trials passing through rapid changes of circumstances, whatever those changes were, to rejoice that they were ordered of the Lord. They were to remember that nothing in life is permanent. And the rich people especially, who were most disposed to murmur and complain when their circumstances were changed, were to remember that nothing is certain. Blessed indeed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. That's guarantee number three. Nothing is permanent. Here's number four. There's only five, so the coffee will be ready, don't worry. Here, number four. Guarantee number four. You will have times of temptation. Yeah, in this year, you're going to be tempted one way or another. We live in a world of temptations, don't we? We're surrounded by enticements, media advertising, junk mail either in your email account or in your snail letterbox. It's ever been this way, isn't it? Whether the forbidden fruit of Eden, enticing, the practices of the surrounding nations so alluring to, the, to God's people, the Israelites. Oh, they looked to the world and they saw and they liked and so they started to absorb, absorb, absorb. And of course they fell. Or was it the sensuous culture of Corinth that was impacting the church? 
And the Apostle Paul had to write against that warning. Don't be tempted by that. That is not the way of the Christian. That is not the life that God has planned and determined for you. All these temptations are, are designed to draw us into a condition of covetousness. Enticing us to think that we will be losing out if we don't have that. We'll lose out if that practice of the world doesn't have some effect on us here. So we'll absorb that. The temptations are there day in and day out. When we lived in Pakistan, um, we came to realize, uh, and it was, uh, it was kind of said in a, in a joking way, but there were three main causes of trouble in society. Three main causes. There was Zin, Zanan, Zamin. Easy to remember. You wouldn't have a clue what I'm talking about. But Zin is the word for gold. In other words, wealth. Zanan, from which the word Zanana comes, which some of you may be a bit more familiar with. Zanan means woman. And Zamin is ground. So, gold, wealth, woman, sensuality, that whole area of sex that is so pervasive today, and the mean ground, which is possessions. These were the three main causes of family breakdown, of crime, of murder within the land of Pakistan. And quite honestly, it's probably much the same in Australia. Not much different. Temptations. Temptations. But James is continuing a theme. He's recognizing that testing times, trials, trials might tempt us to doubt. There's the temptation. To think that the Lord has abandoned us. That our situation that we are in, this trial, this difficult, is beyond his care and control. And if our Lord permits testing times to come to us, and here's the, the, the skewed logic, then James appears to foresee that men and women will point the finger at God, charging him as, well, if you've allowed it, it's you who's tempting me to turn away from you. Strange, isn't it? Strange logic, but that's, that's it. Lord, you're tempting me to turn away from you. Well, testing times can have two outcomes. They will either drive us closer to the one who loves us, driving us closer in faith and trust, or they will tempt to turn us away from God in disappointment and unbelief. Joy and I were made aware a number of years ago of a lady in England who professional, as far as I remember, she was a teacher. She was very active in church, um, great writer to missionaries. She taught Sunday school, and she had a, a home study group. So very active in church, you know, one of the pillars of the church. Everything was going along well. But then she got sick. She got sick. 
And that woman today has walked away from everything that she professed to believe. She could not handle the facts that somehow or other God had let her down in the midst of her service, made her sick so that she couldn't do it anymore. See the temptation that's there? It's almost as though, well, God, this is what you've done. This is what you've done. James is concerned that these scattered Jewish Christians might be tempted in that idea. And so he writes to them, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But, and here James makes an interesting principle, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. God has set us in a world which is overflowing with temptations. Zin, Zanan, Zamin, money, sensuality, possessions. Is God then the one who tempts us to turn from him? No, it's from within the evil heart of man, the sinful heart of mankind, uh, that we turn from God. And we are enticed by the ways of a world that neither seeks the wisdom of God um, or wants to live. That's what's happening today. You know, we, we, we really have passed through a phase of, of men and women just refusing to obey God. Now we're in a, 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 a time when very openly men and women choose to live as though God does not exist. That's where we're at. That's why the world is the way it is today. James says, no. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Last guarantee. God doesn't change. Simple again, these basic facts we must continue to remember. In the midst of the trials and temptations, in the midst of the world in which we live, God does not change. Oh, very well, you might say. Uh, we live in very different times from those of those scattered Jewish Christians that James is writing to. Changed circumstances call for changed responses. It's God's wisdom of yesterday sufficient for today many would say god's word is out of date for the modern world but god hasn't changed his words his word stands should not god's love be softened to tolerate the ways of a rebellious society many would say that god is an intolerant deity if he neither permits nor approves of sensual lifestyles. But the divine pattern for life that is good and true has not been altered. God's word stands. Is God's power negated by the drive of men and women to absolute godlessness? 
You know, as, as man groans so much in his rebellion that somehow or other he's, his power is greater than the Almighty. As I say, many live without fear of God. Who fears God these days? But one day men and women will be powerless when they are called to account before the Holy One. And so, James writes this, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so when we read the scriptures, when we learn about who God is, this revelation of himself that he's given to us, we can depend that even although it was given so long ago, it stands exactly the same today. The God of the world of Abraham is the God of our world. The God who is in control of the affairs of man through the times of the prophets of the Old Testament is the same God who is in control of the affairs of men and women in our day today. God does not change. And so as we look at the world around us, we might be tempted to think that God's got lost somewhere. You know, we've moved beyond his orbit. But this is not so. God does not change. There is no shadow of change within him. And then we have this verse 18, and I'm not going to go any further in the chapter. Uh, beautiful statement it is, and it really sums it up. For by his own will, here's God at work, by his own will, he has brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And let me assure you, my friends, as you go into this year, that God, having begun a good work in you, will see it through to completion. Even through the trials, even through the times of temptation, you will not be lost to him. He knows where you're at. And so these are the guarantees that you have. Let me just remind them to you. You will have times of trial. Seek wisdom to endure. You will have a source of wisdom. You do have a source of wisdom. So liberally given by God, by the Holy Spirit through the Bible. Nothing on earth is permanent. Realize that. Our security is in Christ alone. You will have times of temptation, but don't blame God when you fail. Realize it's sin that's at work. And in the midst of it all, God does not change. Let me close by reading from the Apostle Peter. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. 
firm in your faith. Knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You're not alone. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen.